Back in 2019, the world was introduced to a documentary titled The Biggest Little Farm. And it happened to be around that time that my amazing wife, Steph Tuss, the CEO of Life Is Now, turned me on to watching it. At first I resisted, but when I saw it for the first time, the emotions I felt were unlike anything else. It's an amazing look at how hard work, desire, commitment to a vision, and dedication, along with the help of some very important mentors, can get you to where you need to go. So come in as we talk all about the acres of wisdom that we gleaned from the biggest little farm. Successful people learn how to make their mind work for them. I'm David Nagel, and this is the Successful Mind Podcast. Full Throttle Thursday here on the Successful Mind Podcast. You may notice across from me today is not David, but it's Steph, the CEO of Life Is Now, Steph Tuss, and my beautiful wife. Welcome to the pod. Thanks. I'm glad to have you here. It's good to be here. Um, yeah, well, the, part of the reason you're in this seat is because this, a couple of weeks ago, we had Earth Day, and I don't know if people make a big deal out of Earth Day. I think it's important to, to celebrate the Earth whenever we can, but on that day, they released a sort of a follow-up to the documentary and your favorite documentary, I would assume of all time, The Biggest Little Farm. Yes. Which is a documentary that you turned me on to that I initially resisted it because I think we had this conversation where sometimes when people tell you to watch something, you sort of dig in and say, no, I don't want to do that. But then when I finally saw it, I saw exactly what you were talking about. So what we figured we would do for this Full Throttle Thursday is have a little conversation about The Biggest Little Farm and more importantly, the amazing lessons that you can glean from watching this beautifully shot film. Just to give a little backstory for the listeners who may not know about this particular documentary, it was called The Biggest Little Farm, came out in 2019. If you haven't seen it, and if you want to see it, uh, you may want to put this podcast down for now and come back and listen, because there is definitely going to be some uh, spoilers coming out here, yeah. because we can't really talk about the film that came out three years ago without spoiling some of it. So yeah. push pause right now, go watch it. You can find it on Apple, purchase it. I'd recommend it. There's some beautifully uh, after extras that you should watch as well as the film itself. Uh, and then there, of course, there's The Biggest Little Farm, The Return that came out on uh, Disney Plus uh, leading into a series on Nat Geo and all sorts of crazy things. So yes. if you haven't yet watched it, definitely put it down right now and come back and see us. So. We're going to spoil the whole thing. We're going to spoil the whole thing. Yeah. Well, you're going to spoil the whole thing yes. because you're the one who was educating me on all these amazing lessons from this yeah. film. So let's start yeah. there. When you go back and think about The Biggest Little Farm and you've seen it multiple times now, what are the things that jump out at you the most? So I first saw this movie um, on a flight, actually. It was back in, I think it was July of 2019. 2019 yeah. And we were flying uh, to Montana. We fly to Montana every summer uh, to hang out with family. Plus it's Montana and who doesn't love Montana? Um, but I saw it on the plane and I had such a reaction to this documentary. Like I sat in my seat and sobbed and it's not a sad, guys, it's not a sad documentary. It's actually a really like feel good documentary. But I think the reason that I had the reaction that I did was kind of the same reason I had the reaction to David when I first heard him, 
when you hear truth and when you see truth, it just, I don't know, it, you feel it. It's like a, it's like an arrow through your heart. And there were so many things that happened in my brain during that documentary. And I've had multiple conversations with our clients about this. Um, you know, it's come up in conversation with our kids. It's come up in conversation with our team. And I think that just based on my own personal background, I saw things in this movie that other people may not have seen. So first of all, I have a little bit of a history in farming. Um, you do? I Tell do. us more about this. So I come from a long line of Norwegian uh, farmers. My grandparents were immigrants um, and settled in Wisconsin in, in central kind of, yeah, pretty much like south central Wisconsin. Um, and they were dairy farmers. Uh, my grandma and grandpa were dairy farmers and they had animals and, and they had a really beautiful farm. And I would spend summers I'm getting emotional. I, Today I is an emotional that. day. Yeah. Um, but they would, I would spend summers there with them. Um, and I would, you know, sit on the farm steps and watch them, you know, milk the cows. And I would take the slop to the pigs and I would walk around the, the property and I would go with my, my, um, uncles to bring the cows in from pasture. So I have a, I have like a love and I have so many great memories of being a child on a farm um, that I think it tapped into to that piece. I've got a real tie to nature. I love, I mean, being I love outdoors. nature. I love being outdoors. Whenever I'm feeling a little bit lost, I'll go and, you know, just be outside. I know a lot of people um, feel that same way, but for whatever reason, this movie really hit me um, hard, kind of like right through my heart and right in between my eyes at the same time. And I think the reason, part of the, the other reason that it did is because I have such a passion for universal truth. And the entire movie is about universal truth. You can see the laws in every single aspect of this movie. And you know, we teach the laws in context of business, right? You know, you hear David teach about the law of polarity. You hear David teach about the law of cause and effect and how it applies to business. But it it applies to every single thing in life. Like, it, it, it doesn't discriminate. In one area, the laws work, and in one area, the laws don't work. Um, they work in every area of life in general. I mean, the biggest tenant of the laws is everything is for more life. And right. there isn't a better example of that than in this movie. And I just kept seeing um, example after example of these laws. Um, you know, this was, this was a dream of two people. I think it's interesting that in the documentary, they talk about how they had wanted to do this for a while. Right. It wasn't right. just something were, that just came up. Right. So it's Molly and John. Mm -hmm. yeah, um, Molly was a food vlogger at the time when yeah, vlogs, like vlogs were a thing. She was a private chef and food vlogger. She real, has a real passion for food and nutrients and food and, and sharing that message. And John was a wildlife um, photographer, videographer. I mean, he, he had a pretty prolific career in in California where he would be gone for, you know, weeks on end documenting, documenting wildlife. So they had both had this dream of, well, mainly Molly, honestly, had this dream of having a farm, but they didn't have the means to be able to do that. They didn't know how, and they didn't have the money. And I mean, it's a big endeavor to start a farm, right? Like 
Yeah, it's not like you're just buying a piece of land and it just automatically becomes a farm. Like when people go out searching for houses, they buy a house yeah. and they've got a house. This is comes with a whole set of, of challenges. Yeah. And it, quite, quite a bit of money. Yeah. So they had wanted to do this for quite some time, but never could see the how, right? So I think everybody can relate to that, having a deep desire, but then not acting on it because you can't see the how. But the first lesson in this is that if you have a desire, then the way is also present because nothing is nothing is created in halves, right? right? Everything is created in a whole. So that means there's no up without a down. There's no left without a right. There's no problems without a solution. There's no desire without the ability to bring that desire in also present at the same time. But they couldn't see it, right? You don't know what you don't know, sure. which is the case with so many people. You have this desire and you think about it and it's in your secret thoughts and, and, and you hear yourself, you know, like, oh, wow, you know, this is something I'd really love to do, but nah, you know, maybe later you put it off when we figure it out. That's not really realistic. That's not responsible. That's not feasible right now. And John had an experience where he was doing some video coverage of a dog hoarder in the LA area because they were living in Santa Monica at the time. And this woman was hoarding, I think like somewhere over 200 dogs or something insane crazy. insane amount of dogs. A lot of dogs yeah. in her place. And he filmed this dog, this black dog with these bright ice blue eyes and this dog's name was Todd. They named him Todd. He was so taken by him that they took him back to their apartment. Well, the problem with Todd is that he was a barker. Which we're thankful. You know, yes. yes, we're thankful that our dog is not a barker. He's not. He's Thank actually you. under the table at my feet right now. <laughs> um, just like chilling out with us. But Todd was a barker. So every time that they had to leave to go to work or, or market or whatever, he would, he would bark. And they tried everything to get him to stop barking and it wouldn't work. But they had made a commitment to this dog, like a real commitment to this dog that this would be the last home that he would ever have. So an eviction notice showed up and they had to leave. And they knew that if they moved into another apartment, they would just be repeating the same pattern. So they decided this was the time to go for it. And they decided that they were going to have their farm so that Todd would have a place to live out the rest of his days. And it would also move them forward in their, in their vision for what they wanted to create for themselves. So it took the reason of a dog. Yes. They, could, they wouldn't do it for themselves, but they would do it for Todd. And they wrote up a business plan. Yeah. Like wrote up a business plan and they needed investors because they didn't have any money to invest in, in a farm. And their idea was that they didn't want to just create a farm. They wanted to create a biodynamic farm. So, you know, a lot of the food that we eat right now comes from monoculture farms, meaning the farm is specific to one, to one thing that it grows one thing. It grows all raspberries or it grows all corn or it grows all soybean. And that's, that's what my grandparents did, right? They were, you know, grow, corn to feed the cows and grow alfalfa to feed the cows and grow hay to, for the cows to bed in. And then the, you know, it was monoculture, like everything is in chunks and focuses on one thing. This farm was uh, one to be a biodiverse farm with no outside inter intervention. So no sprays, no chemicals, um, no pest control, just organic like biodynamic. And just nature living its, running its course. Nature running its course. Yes, nature running its course. Which sounds simple in when we say it yeah. out loud, but it's much more difficult than that. Yeah, exactly. And they found a property um, just outside of Moore Park, California. It was 200 acres. 200 acres. Yes. yes. And we did some research. They paid $10.4 for it. 
the interesting thing is, is that they pitched this idea to their friends and their friends completely made fun of them. Like their friends totally, I mean, there's a shot in the documentary where they're having a party and their friends show up and they're all wearing pig noses. Yes. Singing old McDonald Singing to old them. Singing old McDonald yes. to them. Right. So they did it anyway. And their friends talked and one thing led to another and investors came forward, which gave them the money to purchase this farm. People who were also really passionate about biodynamic farming and kind of bringing the old way of the old ecosystem way of farming back into, back into practice. So they purchased this piece of land, which is really, uh, it had been vacant for how long? It, I believe it was for sale for 12 years yeah. at that point. When I heard. It had been for sale for 12 years. Um, it was a, um, an orchard, I believe. Primarily they were growing lemons, I believe on the property is what it was. Yes. But it was dead. The dirt was dead. Meaning there weren't, it was dry, crumbled. There wasn't anything. There was, it was very, um, devoid of life in many pieces. There were lemon trees on the property. Um, in doing some research, we found out that there was actually more things alive on the property than the documentary portrayed, but it was still very dead. The soil was dead. Um, so, Again, they had no idea what they were doing. They just knew what they wanted. Read books, researched, reached out to experts. And a lot of people, again, told them they were pretty much batshit crazy. Like, you're crazy for, for doing this. This is, this is not, this is not going to work. And they just really stuck to their belief that it was possible. And they stumbled upon a man by the name of Alan York, who came in and explained how this all works. And he talked about this biodynamic farm like a flywheel of life. Like once it gets going, everything supports everything else. But the first seven years were going to be rough. And basically this doc, this, the movie documents the first seven years, right? So from very beginning to the very end. And the first part of this whole thing was bringing the soil back to life because without alive soil, you're not going to have alive plants. Without alive plants, you're not going to have alive animals. And without any of those things, you don't have a profitable farm. So the first focus was on ripping out the monoculture that was there, bringing the soil back to life through a whole bunch of contraptions, worm bins, um, you know, basically poop tea, Right. To spray on the soil to get the micro microorganisms, to bring Thriving. the microorganisms back to feed the, the cover crops and the um, trees and plants. And then planting in a way where everything was diverse. Nothing was the same. So you had, you know, I don't know, like 30 different types of um, stone fruit. You had, you know, everything was different didn't plant the same thing next to the same thing. The idea is that they all interplay and interact with each other. So they, they did it. I mean, they brought the soil back to life. And then as the farm got going, they ran into lots of problems. And this is the part I think in the movie that impacted me the most, because I'm a big, you know, David talks a lot about the law of polarity right? Sure. It's, he will say it's his favorite law, the law of polarity, because the law of polarity can bring in truth to really any situation. The law of polarity states, like I said in the beginning of this, that there's a polar opposite to each. There's no right without a left. There's no 
um, up without a down. There's no problem without a solution. The problem is, is that we're raised to focus on problems rather than raised to focus and look for solutions. So when these problems came in, you saw them really struggle. And there were all kinds of problems. So I, I wrote a whole bunch of, of, of stuff down. So first was they planted cover crop. So cover crop is what you plant between your fruit trees that um, is basically weeds. It's like grasses, weeds, flowers, plants. And the idea behind the cover crop is that it keeps the moisture. When it rains, it keeps the water in on the ground so that your soil doesn't erode. Doesn't erode. And it also rejuvenates the soil that then feeds the trees. I am not an environmental biologist, just like disclaimer. But here's the thing, you sound <laughs> like you are, which I think is really impressive. Like, this is so really not, good, go on. I thought, I'm like, you better stop yourself and give it a disclaimer because you're going to get contacted by people that are like, Steph, you said this all wrong. So for what it's worth, not an environmental biologist. But, you know, they talked about how this cover crop is beneficial. But then the problem is, is that the cover crop got so high that they had to bring in mowers. Well, bringing in mowers is an added expense and it takes time and it, and it, um, it costs money because you have to pay someone a salary. And we're talking about 200 acres, guys. That's like we're not talking about like a yard, right? This is like you're cutting every single day, all day long to keep on top of the cover crop. Well, Alan said, well, stop mowing. Bring in the sheep. Release the sheep. And not only did the sheep keep the cover crop at a reasonable length, they also eat and are fed. And they leave behind droppings, which then feed the soil. So the beginning of the flywheel is starting to take place. The beginning of the flywheel is starting to take place. Yes. And they saw a problem and their solution was we need to cut the grass. But cutting the grass doesn't really, doesn't really add to anything. It just takes away. So instead of cutting the grass, they bring in sheep. Problem solution. And the solution makes everything better, right? Law of polarity in motion. That was the first time I was like, oh, ding, problem ding, ding. solution. If you just take a step back and think about it, right? And at that point, they didn't know what they didn't know, which is a huge theme through this movie is that they didn't know what they didn't know. They had to find the things that they needed to know that they didn't even know that they were going to need to know. I'm just wondering how many people are listening to this right now and are saying, oh my gosh, I haven't seen this film, but every single thing you've mentioned to this point is exactly me in where I'm at in my life, my business, oh, yeah. my personal life. You know, you talked about desire, you talked about commitment, you talked about hiring a mentor, you talked about family not believing in your vision and making fun of you. And I mean, you look at all the themes up to this point you've talked mm -hmm. about, I'm sure every person out there can relate to something that you're saying. I think it's absolutely yeah. genius. And we even got we haven't even really gotten to the good stuff yet. It's what Napoleon Hill calls calls the slightest guises of opportunity. Yes. Right? I think it was Napoleon Hill. Yes. The slightest guises of opportunity where something happens and it feels like something it, that that it's a bad thing. Like it's 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 you know defeat. It's, it's a negative thing. But it's actually an opportunity in disguise. If you just get out of the emotion of being like, ugh Right. So the next thing that happens is the cover crop is great, but guess what likes cover crop? Snails. Oh. Snails like cover crop. Snails. So in move, like honestly, a gajillion Million. snails. Million like snails. Uh, 
so many freak, like the sheep had snails on their back, like snails everywhere. And the problem with snails is that they don't just eat cover crop. They also climb the trees and they eat the leaves of the fruit trees. Well, if the fruit trees don't have healthy leaves, then they won't bear fruit. So everyone goes into grabbing buckets and trying to remove these. After snail, after snail. Pluck it hand by hand, picking snails. There's no way they can keep up with all these snails. Like, I don't know how many shots they they showed, but literally each tree had hundreds and hundreds of snails And on they're them plucking them night. off in buckets, one at a time, into the buckets. Because they can't spray. Because right. they made the commitment that we're not going to kill things. We're not going to kill these things. Which was interesting because they were close. Like, John was like, you know, should we just spray? And we Molly was spray. like, no, we can't spray. Like, no. Yeah, that would totally defeat the purpose of what they're trying to create in the this right. biodiversity diversity unit. Right. It was one of the commitments they made to themselves. We're not going to do this. We're not going to, we're not going to spray. We're not going to bring in a human element and spray. So they're out there. All of their farmhands are out there with buckets picking these snails. I mean, it's a huge problem, like huge problem. Um, And at the same time, they're in a, they're in a drought. They're in a bit of a drought. So their pond where the ducks were, wasn't getting any fresh water and there were a lot of ducks. So what happens when you have a lot of ducks and not a lot of fresh water is that the duck poop turns toxic and it created a toxic algae bloom. So here they have this problem of these ducks in this pond. They don't know what to do with them. And they have this problem of these snails and basically the snails are eating all of their profits. Like if they don't get rid of these snails, the trees aren't going to bear fruit. They're not going to be, they're not going to have fruit to sell, bring to the market, make money, you know, keep the farm sustain going. So John steps back and he's like, okay, there's got to be something that I don't see here. There's got to be something that I don't understand. And he realizes that what ducks love more than anything are snails. So he moves the ducks from the duck pond to give the duck pond a little bit of a rest from the ducks. And he puts the ducks in the cover crop under the fruit trees. And the ducks take care of the entire population of snails. Yeah, they go to town. They, I mean, complete, they bring it down to a completely manageable level. So now you have snails that are eating your trees. You bring in the ducks. The ducks eat the snails. The ducks trample the cover crop. The ducks leave droppings, which then turn into food for the soil, which then turn into food for the trees. And you didn't even, like, it is 100% the law of polarity in motion. You, ha- you can never have a problem without a solution. And this goes, I mean, I could we could probably spend an hour talking yes. about all the different, um, all the different things that happen that go directly back to the law of polarity. And I think for me, what I get from knowing and understanding this law and seeing so many examples of this is a sense of comfort because it means that I can't ever experience a problem without the solution also present. I just have to be in a place where I can see the opportunity, right? Had he gotten really emotional and really, really upset about these two things that are going wrong that he, you know, people would say he had a right to be upset about, um, and at this point, I forgot to mention that their mentor, Alan, had passed away. So they didn't even have him to come to go to to say like, hey, what do we do here? Right. Alan did suggest the sheep. Alan is now gone. So they're on their own. Had John been super emotional? Had he been angry? Had he been only focused on the problems? He never would have seen that 
there was a solution to each of these and they were intertwined with each other that when combined made the farm overall a better place, hence more life. Right. Like it's so beautiful. It's just, it, it, there's this, like I said, there's this sense of comfort that happens for me because I mean, we've, we've experienced our share of, of problems throughout our entire life, throughout sure. our entire journey. And we have clients that experience problems that are, I mean, run the gamut, right? But if you can get yourself into a place of being non-emotional about it and not taking it personally and not thinking that, you know, God's punishing you for something or the universe is trying to get you to stop, then you actually can see that there is an opportunity in every single problem. And this plays out in, so there's with the fruit comes starlings. Starlings are birds that eat fruit. So 70% of their crop, their fruit crop was destroyed by starlings. So what do you do? They didn't know. They had no idea. They had no idea that hawks eat starlings. Hawks hunt starlings. So hawks came in to control the starling population. They had a huge gopher issue. Major issue. Huge gopher issue. Gophers go in the ground and they eat the roots of the fruit trees. Again, affecting the Again, the affecting yeah. the, the trees, yeah. right? These, these trees, I'm telling you, like what they did to keep fruit, you know, alive, <laughs> alive was yes. incredible. Yeah. But they, um, well, so it, they had, it is called apricot farms, let's be honest. Apricot so they, farms, they, yeah. Stone fruit yeah. is a major yes. premise of, yeah. of their it operation. It is Southern California, right? Yes, so correct. I mean, it's, it's fruit area. Um, but they had this huge issue with gophers. And so- you and I were talking about this on the drive-in this morning. They hired... Yeah, I was listening. They hired two to three full-time employees. Their only job on the farm was to just eradicate the gopher population because John had mentioned that for a year, they tried to humanely trap and release, which is what a sustainable farm would yeah. do because they don't want to hurt any yeah. of the animals. It, yeah. it endangers the ecosystem, but they could not keep up. So they got to a point where they had to hire people whose sole job and sole focus was to kill the gophers and remove them from the property. They could not keep up. Over the course of the year, they were only able to remove 9,000 gophers over the course of an entire year, which leads them to bringing, <laughs> which, which actually at the cost is going to be around $300,000 when you start paying salaries over the course of time it's going to take to completely bring this down to a manageable level. Yeah. So instead, they decide to bring the flywheel in and rely on nature. So what do they do? They install barn owl houses. Yes. So $750 worth of lumber and labor to put these barn owl houses on the property. And what does that do? Brings these barn, barn owls in that start to eradicate the population of gophers. And they... They say in the dock, they removed 15,000 gophers. These barn owls removed 15,000 gophers. John said in a podcast I listened to, it was actually closer to 30,000 when you stop and think about it. And at one point in time, there were 87 barn owls that were coming in and out of that property feasting on these gophers. And the gophers have a purpose. You know, you, you want to keep that population there, but mm. you don't want it so overrun to where it right. starts damaging your fruit trees. Right. The gophers are good for the soil yes. in, in, uh, in moderation. Right. I guess the phrase is they aerate the soil. You know, they obviously poop in the soil, yes. which then feeds the soil, um, but too many of them and it kills all your fruit trees. So right. $750 worth of wood. Yeah. Instead of paying $300,000 worth of salary yeah. to eradicate the same amount of right. gophers. Fascinating stuff. Every problem has a solution. Every problem has a solution. It's a law of polarity, right? And then the snakes come in and there's a whole section on, 
on coyotes. I'm not going to go into that. I'll let you watch that section yourself. But it's fascinating how something that seems like such a problem is actually part of a solution. Right. That's if so true. you just take the time to step back and see it, see it in a different way. You it's, know, it, like, it's like the it's like the fly who is beating its head against the the window, trying to get out back to its home. If it would just stop for a moment and take a step back and look, it would see that the the window is slightly ajar over to the side, yeah. and can, it could fly right out. I mean, yeah. really, that's what you're seeing here. Every problem. I, I when you were speaking about that stuff, I was thinking about you know how. You know, I've learned to be less reactionary during times of like uncomfortable crisis rather than, um, because that was my MO. That's how I used to deal with things. It's just, I react in the moment. And that's not usually good for anybody because you can't see the solution. All you can see is the problem, like you said, and all you can resort to is why me such a victim it gets kind of drippy gross so for me being able to stop you know take a breath Mm -hmm. observe what's happening and then proceed with some sort of a solution it sounds easy people it really isn't but I envision that stop sign in my head like stop and think about this for a moment because you can freak out like my dad used to do when something wouldn't work and just throw shit around or you could take a break take a breath Think about what you're doing and make like a, a, a an educated step forward rather than reacting and making things, yeah. compounding them worse. The final little piece to this, this little story, um, that was super impactful for me is is th- that there's a gift in everything, right? There's a gift in, in even the like saddest, worst situations. So um, they were having an issue with coyotes getting into their chickens, and they had killed hundreds of chickens at that point. And um, John had shot one of the coyotes um, and felt horrific about it. He was traumatized by that for sure. Um, But they could not figure out a way to keep their chickens safe. They tried um, some Great Pyrenees, but it appeared that the dogs would chase the chickens, which is not good because stressed chickens don't lay eggs and you don't want the dogs to kill. (laughs) You don't want to put a predator in with chickens. so that was happening. At the same time, there was this really interesting relationship developing between their pig by the name of Emma and a kind of a outcast rooster that they named Greasy. And this rooster looked greasy. He, looked like, rough. he was a rough looking rooster. <laughs> rough looking rooster. But, but Emma and, and Greasy were just, they were friends. Greasy would sleep in, in Emma's uh, pen. pig pen. Um, and they, like, they were just a part of each other's lives. There's a picture of Greasy actually standing on top of Emma, which is, you know, so, so endearing and so sweet. Yeah. Well, one night John went out to feed Emma and he realized that Greasy wasn't there. And he was looking all over for Greasy and couldn't find him. And he noticed there were some feathers in a fence and he looked over the fence and it turned out that Greasy had somehow gotten killed by one of their guardian dogs. So they had Great Pyrenees dogs that would protect the, their herd of, of um, sheep and their lambs from predators. And somehow the dogs had gotten a hold of Greasy and John was really upset about it. He was really, really upset about it, but he noticed that only one of the dogs had blood on him and the other dog Rosie had none of Greasy's blood. So that gave him the idea that maybe Rosie could guard the chickens. And he put Rosie in with the chickens and they never had a problem with coyotes getting into the chickens again. So in the loss. In the loss of Greasy, 
he took the time to really observe what happened and noticed something that later became a massive gift and saved thousands of chicken lives because one of the dogs killed Greasy and the other one didn't. So Rosie became the chicken guardian and there were no other issues with coyotes getting into the getting into the chickens. She never chased the chickens. They were like her her like her herd. Um, she protected them. But had he been, again, had he been over emotional, had he gotten, you know, really upset and just focused on the fact that Gracie had been killed, he would never have seen the opportunity that lied in that, you know, tragic um, event. Yeah, it's, it's that silver lining. I mean, it really is that silver lining in things that you don't often see. And, you know, in our company, you know, David and you yourself always stress the importance of making mistakes because in order to grow and stretch and overcome, there has to be mistakes being made. We make mistakes every single day. I make mistakes every day of my life. And, you know... We, it's not like we, you know, jump on the table and celebrate. Yeah, I, I screwed <laughs> up today, but yeah, you, it does no. give you an opportunity to realize that without the failure, you aren't able to get to the place you want to get to because it allows you to grow. And I think we could go through and talk about all of the failures that the Apricot Lane Farms went through in the years that this was documented and still to this day continue to do so. And listening to John talk um, just in an interview that he did back in 2019, he, it took him a good five or six years to get to the place where he was no longer, um, judging his failures. He welcomed the failure because it allowed him the next evolution of the farm, the next step on where they needed to go, the next solution to get rid of the snails or to get rid of the gophers or to enhance the stone fruit crop or to fix the fruit basket. He's always been, it took him a long time to get there. Whereas most people would have just said, you know, this is not not for me. Let's go back to the city and go about our lives. They were committed because, and, and by this time, Todd is, you know, Todd has since moved on, but they were committed to this, to seeing it all the way through. Yeah. And now this biggest little farm is this wonderful sensation that's teaching all humans about the importance of biodiversity mm-hmm. and what we can do in the age of climate change to be able to help fix our soil. You know, we lived in Southern California, we lived in the Mojave Desert. Mm-hmm. We know how desolate that soil can be. And for miles and miles and miles, it almost likes you're on the, you know, you're on the, the rover up on the moon, yeah, yeah. right? Like but these, these amazing individuals and a collective of people, I shouldn't just say it's John and Molly. Oh, I gosh. mean, they had a huge team of volunteers and paid help that would come in and brought this and regenerated this soil. It's really cool to see what it was to what it is now. And other people are starting to follow sort of that MO of creating a farm. It's not easy because it requires a lot of time, requires a lot of effort, requires a lot of capital to be able to get to this point. Mm -hmm. And we have billions of people on this planet that need food, but the nutrient rich food that they are producing there and these other small farms. That's, that's why like we love to go to farmers markets. You support these local farmers yeah. at a grassroots roots level, but you also get these delicious high nutrient foods. I just love that John getting back to the point is that he now welcomes those failures because he knows there's a gift in everything. And it took him a very long time to get there, but now he doesn't stress out as much as he used to because now he knows that he can stop, take a breath and observe his surroundings before he proceeds ahead. So many lessons in this, in yeah. this Um, movie, you know, embrace your failures, sunshine, your failures, talk about them, learn from them. Um, And just, just know that if you've got a desire, the way is there. And if you've got a problem, the solution is there as well. 
Absolutely. So, and it's great, the, fragility, the fragility that we are in this life. You only get one chance. So live it to the best of your abilities. And, uh, you know, it's, it's great to see you having been this little girl sitting on the steps of Sorensen Lane, yeah. looking and observing. And you you were able to take uh, myself and the girls out there to see yeah. this farm. It's since changed hands, but we were able to go up on the property and look yeah. out there. And you were struck with emotion then at that time, looking out and remembering all those good times because you used to take milk directly out of the bulk tank. Like you used to do oh, yeah. all these amazing things things on the farm and feeding the animals and, and the food. Oh man, your grandma used to just make some amazing foods. I would put on pounds just going into her kitchen before I even ate anything, but it was cool to see that and take pictures and to see what it, what it was like and, and to see how that rolling farmland in the central part of our country is so vital to, to getting it into our hands. And, and my, my big ask for our listeners would be, first of all, watch this movie. Like you got to oh see gosh. this movie. Drop everything and watch this Watch movie. this film. <laughs> this documentary is great. And then follow it up with The Return, which is just a short form little check-in that is leading up to them releasing a, a series that's going to happen on Nat Geo where they're going to follow a little bit more of, of this story. And they've, they've got great Instagram stories and things out there. I would encourage people to do that first, but I would also encourage them to do your best to, you know, source locally am, uh, amazing food. Like you can go and, and yeah. the farm to table thing, I think has been probably overused a little bit because how many people, like you can put farm to table, but is it really farm to table? When you go to a farmer's market and when you see all those little booths there and they've got, they're selling all these things, go check it out. You can get it in your grocery store, but it's so much better to get it at the local market. That's what I would recommend. So any last words you send us out here on your uh, biggest little farm adventure? No, just pay attention. Pay attention because you can learn a lot from a pig, from a gopher, from a barn owl. There's things that you can learn and apply to your own life. I mean, if you're ever confused, all you need to do is look to nature. Like it's all you need. It, it has all, there's all the answers, right? Like all the answers are found in nature. It That's just, it. it's, it's really comforting to me to know that like, I'll never have a problem that doesn't come also with a solution or that I can't handle. And I'll never have a desire that I can't ever have. Um, so that's beautiful. Yeah, that's a good way to that's a good way to send it off. Well, I yeah. appreciate you coming in here. Thanks and for having me. this with us. I'm sure our audience is going to get a wonderful, <laughs> wonderful uh, gift by listening to you talk about the biggest little farm. So thanks, Steph. You're welcome. Thank you. Well, there you have it, everyone. Hopefully you enjoyed this episode of Full Throttle Thursday, The Biggest Little Farm. Do yourself a favor, go and watch this documentary right now. It's not only beautifully shot, but it's beautifully crafted and aligns so well with what David teaches around universal law. Do us a favor, smash that like button down below, ring that bell so you get more content like this. And please, above all, continue to come back and listen to these amazing shows. We absolutely love bringing them to you and we can't wait until we do it all again. So until the next time, we'll see you on the Successful Mind Podcast. Take care. Thanks for listening to the Successful Mind Podcast. And if you like what you heard and you want to know more, go to davidnagel.com forward slash free stuff.